The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. This episode is brought to you by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Learn more at bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Well, it's been a remarkably quiet week with few dramatic events on the battlefield, although there have been some very interesting developments on the diplomatic front. The lull is quite welcome, we have to say, given that Patrick and I are currently on the road in Poland on our way to a tour of Ukraine, where we'll be meeting up with some old friends of the podcast and making some new ones and I have to say, Patrick, it is quite unusual for us to be in the same room recording together, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we have actually met before, it's got to be said. But, uh, you know, it's, it's great to all to be together as a team. So, uh, yes, indeed, an exciting time ahead. Um, we'll be talking about that a bit later on. But first, there, have been, there has been some news on the ongoing Ukrainian offensive, nothing that suggests that the main effort is underway, but interesting incremental gains being made nonetheless. One is the degradation of Russia's capabilities by striking at bridges connecting Crimea with the Southern Front, and the other is further operations across the Dnipro River with the apparent aim of getting a foothold on the left, i.e. the eastern bank. But first, those bridge attacks. Tell us about those, Saul. Well, they seem to be quite significant. They took place on the 6th of August against two key road bridges between Crimea and the occupied Kherson Oblast. One of the bridges crossed the Henechesk Strait and connected Henechesk Rayon to the Arabat Spit. And the other was the Chonar Road Bridge on the M18, and that's the Jankoy to Melitopol Highway. Now, inevitably, Patrick, occupation officials have tried to downplay the damage that was done, but they do acknowledge that repair work is underway and that traffic has been rerouted. According to the Reliable Institute for the Study of War, the damage to the bridge across the Henechest Strait was, and I quote, likely forcing Russian forces to redirect military traffic from the Arabat Spit to longer western routes between occupied Crimea and occupied Kherson Oblast. While the attack on the Tronar Bridge has caused a major bottleneck in Russian resupply of its forces in Kherson Oblast that will likely pose significant disruptions to logistics and chances for delays and traffic jams. 
So why does all this matter? Well, the broader perspective is also given by the ISW, which notes that Ukrainian strikes on bridges along critical Russian lines of communication are part of the Ukrainian interdiction campaign focused on setting conditions for future decisive counteroffensive operations. And it cites a prominent Wagner-affiliated Russian mill blogger as saying that these strikes on the 6th of August show that Ukrainian forces are methodically trying to cut off the Russian grouping in southern Ukraine and disrupt its logistics in a way similar to the Ukrainian interdiction campaign during the Kherson counteroffensive. The mill blogger went on to note that Russian defences on the western or right bank of the Kherson oblast broke down in a matter of days following months of Ukrainian strikes on Russian logistics and expressed concern that the situation could repeat itself. So it seems, Patrick, that this is all part of the Ukrainians' cunning plan and that, as the mill blogger fears, history might be about to repeat itself. But what about those cross-river operations? Yeah, it seems to be part of the same thing, doesn't it? It's been going on for some time. Ukrainian forces uh, in the last couple of days appear to have conducted a limited raid across the Dnipro and landed on the east bank of the Kherson Oblast. It's not clear whether they've actually managed to establish a viable bridgehead, and it's pretty small-scale stuff. Several mill bloggers, Russian mill bloggers, that is, reported that on the 8th of August, uh, Ukrainian forces landed up to seven boats, each carrying around six or seven people, uh, near the settlement of Kozachi Lahari. They broke through Russian defensive lines, advanced up to 800 meters deep. It's quite a gain, actually, that in the, in the context of that particular bit of the sector. Uh, one uh, mill blogger presented this as a bit of a cock-up by the Russians, claiming that a Russian airborne unit who'd been defending that sector were shifted out and replaced with some other inferior troops. Um, now, the airborne, of course, are theoretically elite soldiers, but whether that's still the case uh, is not really clear. I say this because the other day their commander let slip that at least 8,500 of them have been wounded since the war proper began. This is General Mikhail Toplinsky, who we often hear mentioned on the pod. Uh, he was making a speech congratulating his men. I think it was on Airborne Forces Day or something. And he revealed that 5,000 wounded men had gone straight back to the front after recovering from their injuries. And a further 3,500 had refused to leave the battle zone at all. Of course, that immediately raises the question of um, what about those who were too badly wounded to return, uh, let alone the number who were actually killed? Now, of course, it's very rare for the Russians to admit any casualties at all, so this is quite significant. New units, airborne units, are being created, but of course, you know, it takes a long time to actually get up to the level of skill you need to qualify as a sort of elite unit. And so this all adds, seems to me, sort of add to this picture that's developed since the beginning, that the airborne uh, took a, a battering in the in the opening phase of the war, and they've been suffering significant losses ever since. Anyway, I'm digressing, but just to get back to the Dnipro River operations, as again we expect, the local Russian uh, senior official in the area claimed that they'd been driven back. Ukrainians had been driven back by artillery fire and that uh, there are no Ukrainian troops uh, anywhere in the area. However, this has been contradicted by 
you know, the mill bloggers who are a more reliable source for sure. And they present it as being a, a pretty successful small scale operation. And that these, uh, you know, counterclaims are just to try and calm down the local population and the local troops, I might add. Now, we should uh, move on now from the battlefield to talk about some interesting developments on peace moves. Yeah, exactly right. There was, it seems, a highly significant summit last weekend in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, that was attended by Ukrainian representatives and national security envoys from two dozen countries to discuss a 10-point peace plan that had been proposed by Kyiv. Now, these countries included all the usual suspects, of course, Western powers like the US and UK, but also, and here's the interesting bit, India and China. Now, while nothing concrete came out of the talks, the Financial Times reported that the Chinese representatives at the meeting were, and I quote, constructive and keen to show that China is not Russia. The FT also quoted a European diplomat saying that the mere presence of China shows Russia is more and more isolated. So the question is, why did China attend the talks when it boycotted something similar at Copenhagen recently? And the answer, according to some sources, which cited a Russian insider, was that China was unhappy at Russia's rejection of its 12-point peace plan for the war in Ukraine from February 2023, which the Chinese delegation reintroduced during the talks in Saudi Arabia, and moreover, that some Chinese elites are secretly expressing their dissatisfaction with the actions of the Russian leadership regarding a peaceful settlement of the war in Ukraine. So if these reports are true, it seems that China is not fully aligned with Russia on the issue of Ukraine and that Russia and China's relationship is not, as it's been touted, a no-limits partnership as the Kremlin desires. And the reason China's stance is so important is because the developing and non-aligned nations in the Middle East, Africa and South America, that have not necessarily joined NATO in condemning Russia, tend to line up behind China and will probably take its lead over this. And just to mention another European diplomat is, was quoted in the Daily Telegraph as welcoming the broad general support from all delegates towards the idea that respect of national integrity and the sovereignty of Ukraine needs to be at the heart of any peace settlement. Clearly, all this is not something that Russia wants to hear. So, Patrick, what do you make of all of this? Well, as usual, as you know, they give with one hand, they take with the other. So while all this sort of encouraging signals are coming out of, out of these meetings, we shouldn't forget that China's just conducted joint naval exercises with the Russians off the coast of Alaska. And that caused a bit of a stir with the American Navy, who sent some destroyers to the area. So, yeah, but on the, you know, having said that, I mean, it's interesting that Lavrov was not at the meeting, but he did have a call, I think, uh, earlier this week with the his um, Chinese opposite number, that's uh, Wang Yi, in which all he got out of that was saying that from the Chinese was, was reiterating that they are trustworthy and reliable good friends and partners. But he went on to say on the Ukraine crisis, China will uphold an independent and impartial position, which seems to kind of chime with those earlier reports, doesn't it, that they are very much saying we will do our thing and you do yours, despite all these rather kind of empty utterances about what great buddies they all are. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're on the move and we're just about to cross into Ukraine, a trip that's long overdue. What are you hoping to get out of it, Saul? Well, you're right, Patrick, it is long overdue. We, we've been talking about Ukraine for uh, just over a year, I think it is now. Uh, and it is high time we actually saw for ourselves what's going on on the ground. 
we are hoping to meet some new faces. We can't really go into any uh, detail about what we're about to do and exactly where we're going to go and what we will see. All that will be revealed in weeks to come. But suffice to say, we intend to get a sense of how the military and civilian war effort is going and to gauge for ourselves the Ukrainian determination to come out on top in this war. What about you, Patrick? What are you hoping to get out of this? Well, it'd be great to see some old friends, as you say, Saul, but uh, it's a long time since I've been in a war zone, actually, not since 2008 in Afghanistan. But uh, as you say, we've developed, I think, some pretty clear ideas about the nature of this war, but there isn't any substitute, really, for getting your boots on the ground and just exposing yourself to the atmosphere, you know, picking up the vibe. I've also been doing a lot of reading over the last year of um, historical reading and, and uh, literary reading of Ukrainian authors, people like Isaac Babel, the great Jewish writer from Odessa, who chronicled the early days of the re revolution. So, yeah, it'd be great to kind of match up those writings with the reality. There's still a great sort of uh, sense of history, I think, in, in Ukraine from what I gather. So I want to do a bit of cultural sightseeing as well, soak up some of that, you know, civilizational, cultural, historical atmosphere. Anyway, that's it for this half. Do join us after the break for listeners' questions. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Yeah. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome back. Well, before we deal with listeners' questions, I should just mention that we've had another last-minute update from our resident cybersecurity expert, David Alexander. He said a number of interesting things. I don't have time to go into all of them, but the last point he makes is really quite extraordinary. He describes a piece of cyber espionage that took place between Russia and and I'm sure you're imagining, I'm going to say, Ukraine, uh, United States, UK, all of which is going on, as I'm sure you know from other parts of the news. But this is Russia and North Korea. So David writes, 
It is reported that Russia has been hacked, not by Ukraine, but by North Korea, which has a long track record of hacking. A technical report by Sentinel Labs, a US-based information security service provider, says that Russian missile engineering organization MPO was hacked for about five months with a piece of malware that compromised the server. Now, this is attributed to two North Korean hacking groups known as Scarcroft and the Lazarus Group to compromise the MPO internal network. Given the ambitious and aggressive development of medium and long-range missiles by North Korea, the motivation is obvious to steal missile design data and technology for use in their own missile program. Stealing this data saves time and money, provided that accurate data is stolen. Now, some of the listeners may be thinking, hold on, what's going on here? I mean, the last we've heard, uh, Russia is trying to get missiles off North Korea, and yet it's been stealing information from them. Uh, is this all surprising? Well, David explains that MPO, that's the Russian uh, missile company, was central to the early work on hypersonic missiles, recent satellite technology, and newer generation ballistic rocket systems. And according to the Sentinel Labs report, the attack began even before the major invasion of Ukraine, and that is late 2021, and continued until May 2022 when it was detected. Yet again, the source of the infection is thought to have been a compromised email used to infect the computer of the recipient and then use that to explore the network and find the servers containing the design data. And here's the funny bit of all of this. News of the attack only came to light after an employee of MPO was investigating the attack and accidentally leaked MPO internal communications about the compromise to a private portal used by cybersecurity researchers worldwide. So all, all the more reason not to open those dodgy looking emails in your, in your inbox, I would say. Uh, okay, one for you here, Saul. Peter Frisk from Sweden. Thanks for a great show. In a future update on Saul David's book, Military Blunders, uh, would you include Putin's 2022 invasion of Ukraine, and if so, why? Um, remind us about military blunders. I've read most of your oeuvre, I think, uh, Saul, but I think that one might have passed me by. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to let the listeners into a bit of a secret here. I mean, military blunders, uh, volume one, uh, there hasn't been a volume two, but there might well be. And, and to quickly answer the question, Peter, it would undoubtedly be there. Um, it would be one of the center points of, of the story. I mean, I think when I wrote the original Military Blunders, I grouped it into thematic over underestimation of the enemy, uh, uh, political interference. And it's interesting that Putin's invasion of Ukraine would involve multiple uh, uh, of these themes. Um, but to let you into a little secret about military blunders, I was told that I was going to get a maximum amount for this book, and I won't mention that amount. And I calculated that given they were paying me a relatively modest amount, I would need to write it very quickly. So I wrote that book in three months. Now, the reason I mention that is that it's still selling today. And it just goes to show, Patrick, we can spend two, three years, which I have done on some of my other books, and they've made virtually no money at all. And you can write a book very quickly. And there's something about writing quickly that kind of drives the story on. So I would like, it has made me an awful lot of money, that book. And it just goes to show that people are quite keen to read about military disasters. I'd love to write another a volume one day, and it will certainly include the invasion of Ukraine. That's a very interesting point for anyone who's actually kind of engaged in the sort of stuff we do, because I've had exactly the same experience. The books that made me the most, or the book that made me the most money, took me a couple of months to write. Uh, 
But uh, you I think which I, one that was. <laughs> well, that was three para. Well, that was because it was you know it was kind of extended journalism. Really, I'd been with three para in uh, southern Afghanistan uh, just after their epic two-month stint in Helmand province in Sangin, siege of Sangin. But of course, that's, you know, it benefits from immediacy from the fact that, as you say, the adrenaline is coursing through the veins and that kind of uh, is transmitted to the storytelling. So I think that's, but, you know, they only come come up every once in a while, don't they? So, uh, yeah, let's uh, move on to a question here from, now this is, I think this is, Quite interesting, given what's going on at the moment. Tom Petch, I'd like to hear the difference between offensive and defensive operations uh, in general terms, i.e. what are the required force ratios, and why media assessments of what a Ukrainian offensive can achieve are so optimistic. Well, you know, very simply, the kind of basic entry-level tactical lesson is that in order to attack a properly defended position you you need kind of uh, three times as many troops as the defenders do so the ratio is three to one that was certainly what i was always taught that's what we were told as we had uh, closed in on the falklands when in fact the ratio was the other way around so clearly it's not um, a golden rule because uh, that was a british victory um, what have you got to say about that, Saul? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that we've always been given those numbers. I mean, you have to take them with a pinch of salt. It partly depends on the quality of the attacking force. It partly depends on the motivation of the defenders. I mean, all of this is relevant to what's going on in Ukraine because, because we can see that you, the Ukrainians almost never have an advantage in numbers, certainly not three to one in, in attacking these fixed Russian positions. What we think is going to make a difference is the quality of the defenders. That is, the, the Russians are undermotivated. Motivated. And here's the really interesting thing about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. The Russian defenders are not being rotated out of the line. And you and I know, Patrick, you know, looking from the First World War to the Second World War, one of the things that all the good militaries did is make sure that their guys got rested. E- even in the Pacific, when the, the, the fighting was particularly brutal, they had a chance to come out of the line. But if you leave soldiers in one place, they're not properly resupplied. They, they've got no opportunity of communicating with their, properly communicating with their families and and getting some rest and recuperation, you are asking for trouble. And again, we we don't know what's going to happen in the months ahead, but we are getting increasing indications that the Russian troops have been left there too long and that they might be on the point of breaking. I've been accused many times, probably by you, Patrick, as much as listeners of being over-optimistic about the Ukrainians' chances. But I think we need to be patient. We need to see this degradation of the uh, supply lines as being for a purpose and not being uh, and not getting drawn in suckered into this uh, uh, discussion about why haven't the Ukrainians done more by now has the Ukrainian counteroffensive been a failure uh, you know only yesterday was another report in one of the newspapers suggesting that that might be the case Patrick and you know my personal belief is that it's irresponsible to be writing these stories because it might affect the political support for the Ukrainians yeah which brings us on to the second part of the question why are media assessments of what a Ukrainian offensive can achieve so optimistic. But that's, you know, that's really the nature of media, isn't it? So it's, it's they've got to change the, the tempo of the narrative the whole time. They've got to switch from one side to the other. So you do get this seesawing between, op, you know, wild optimism and sort of deep gloom, which isn't necessarily founded on anything uh, significant, on actual sort of, you know, data. But... Having said that, I think there is an overall optimism uh, which has, has sort of shaped the way that uh, Western media have approached this story from the beginning. I mean, after the initial kind of, you know, 
moments uh, in the opening days when it seemed like it might very very easily go the other way and i think that is because you know what we were talking about earlier on i think any reasonable detached assessment of the quality of the troops on either side and increasingly the equipment would tell you that uh, even though they've got the numbers and that they are not to be discounted that's not something to be sniffed at at all there is this question of, of motivation and morale and i think that if the ukrainians can actually punch through somewhere it'll be as much a psychological victory as it as it will a purely military one it'll send the message to to the russian troops that you know you really are fighting a losing battle here and if as you as you rightly say this is a war without end for them. This is this could go on forever. Everyone must have appreciated that on the Russian side. So stalemate is not something that anyone sitting in a trench is going to be looking forward to. So I think that there is a high uh, possibility, I wouldn't say probability, that, that that there could be this this sudden collapse. We've spoken about it before, and I think it's it's a real possibility. Moving on from that, Patrick, just give the listeners and me a little bit of an insight into how journalism works. I mean, remember back to your days as foreign editor. So now you're putting together the, the stories as opposed to gathering the stories, and you're you're asking your you know your correspondents to can you look at this angle or that angle. So can you explain then or give us an insight into why if the stories about you know uh, optimism have been playing for a while it's almost inevitable that as a as a journalist or as an editor you need to switch tack and say to guys look okay nothing much is happening we now need a piece on why it's not happening i mean is is that the reality of what happens with journalism of course it very much de- depends on the medium i mean television is famously or notoriously superficial it's it's images lead uh, what you're actually going to cover if you haven't got any images you haven't really got a story whereas you know with newspapers it's very different or indeed radio but you know it's really about a mixture it's about trying to just think of it as a tapestry where you're trying to weave all the elements of what is inevitably a complicated story through each other and in a way that actually allows the reader to move forward but at the same time on sort of through various different narratives, switching from individual stories to broader political stories. A diet of unrelieved military campaign reports is unbelievably boring after a while. You know, it's just simply uh, doesn't, you can't really see the big picture. You can't get any sense of progress or otherwise. Uh, So, you know, a a good editor understands that and tries to put all these elements into the mix in a way that keeps the keeps the reader interested informed and it has to be said and entertained you know news is entertainment in part okay now moving on from that but related to it is a question from bungalow dill and they write we have repeatedly heard from different sources that the majority of ukrainian assets that were prepared for the counteroffensive have yet to be committed to battle is it possible that they've decided not to commit these units after all to hold them in reserve as a safeguard against any large Russian invasion in the future? Now, I'll let you come back on that in a second, Patrick. But my own reading of this is very unlikely, but it is an interesting question because one of the things we haven't gone into too much are this week in particular are claims by the Russians that they're making a bit of an advance in the Kupians region, which of course is the northern part of the Eastern Front. And this was flagged up by the Ukrainians themselves actually a few weeks ago. I think we mentioned this when they said that the Russians were massing you know, a large force there and that they needed to keep an eye on it. 
And it is possible in that context, particularly with these Russian claims, which have yet to be verified that they're making some advances in this area, that actually they do need a force that they can deploy very rapidly, a so-called strategic reserve, in case there is a breakthrough there. Does that sound credible to you, Patrick? Yeah, I think the way it was interpreted at the time is probably correct, that the Russians need to have some good news, some story that they can send home that says, look, it isn't all, uh, we're not just totally on the on the back foot. But I don't think anyone really thought they were going to make any significant gains there, and the quality of the troops is meant to be pretty low. So I think it's a bit of theatre, military theatre, if you like. Okay, we've got a question here from Elizabeth um, that we're not actually going to answer now, but we have lined someone up who may be able to answer this in the future. Uh, it's, a, it's a tricky question. Have Russians ever had fraternity in their society? Well, the obvious answer to that is yes, but we've also been pointing out the extent to which, you know, there's an element of toughness and even brutality sort of baked into the Russian mindset. But we've got someone very good, I think, Patrick, haven't we, who, who may be able to talk about this? Yeah, hasn't been firmed up, so I better not actually name our expert yet. But it's interesting, Tovarich, comrade, you know, that's, a, that's about as fraternal as you can get, isn't it? And that's a word that we associate with the Soviet era. And we also know about the Soviet era that an enormous number of Soviet citizens were involved in murdering their fellow uh, fellow so, communist brothers, you know. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's sort of huge contradictions there. If you, if you compare the, the Nazis for all their evil, uh, they didn't actually kill many fellow Germans. They reserved uh, their energies for their neighbours and minorities, Jews, gypsies and, and the Slavs in general. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that the degree to which communism was able to persuade the citizens that it was okay to, involve, to get involved in these huge massacres on a vast scale in the 1930s, you know, enforced famines, etc. So, yeah, I mean, uh, plenty of, of food for thought there. Okay, moving on very quickly to our last one, I think. Andrew Wally, any more news on promised F-16s? Well, this is really, I think, you know, the F-16s are going to make a difference on the battlefield, aren't they? I mean, if you remember back to our experts on F-16s a few weeks ago, he made the, the, the important point that it's one thing learning how to use these things. It's, a, it, you know, technically how to use them, but you need experience, you know. You need experience, real-world experience of flying F-16s in a, in a combat role, and you can't just train that in just a matter of months. Okay, that's all we have time for this episode. Um, lots of fascinating stuff, interviews and new news brought to you from on the ground in the weeks to come. Goodbye. Goodbye.